This episode, I'm joined by Eric Adler to discuss his book, The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. If you'd like to support the podcast and keep everything running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. Eric Adler, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We are going to be discussing your 2020 book, The Battle of the Classics, How a 19th Century Debate Can Save the Humanities Today, which was published by Oxford University Press, and um, they were kind enough to send me a copy of the book, so very uh, a big thank you to them. And this is a book which is about, in a way, it's about, um, well as you probably tell from the subtitle, how we can save the humanities, but also what exactly the humanities is, how that definition has changed over time, why it might need uh, limitations, what what should we really expect from it, its relation to uh, STEM, and all these ongoing debates really surrounding the question of uh, something that you bring in very quickly in the book of all these articles that we see about why we should save the humanities, why the humanities should be defended, or these these odd things which come in which you make explicitly clear that would never be mentioned in, in any other field you know why why should we save dentistry or something like that but um before we get into the book yes just uh tell us a little bit about yourself uh what did you do and the yeah the history of this book yeah great uh, thank you so much james um so first i would say i'm a, a classics professor um at the university of maryland uh where i've been since 2013 i was teaching at a liberal arts college before and um, I received my PhD in classical studies from Duke University in uh, 2005. Uh, my work originally focused on Roman historiography, that is to say how the Romans wrote history. Um, but I branched out to be more of a intellectual historian generally, and that's focused on the history of the humanities and the history of classical scholarship. Um, as far as the origin of the book, um, The Battle of the Classics from 2020, it was really research for a previous book that got me to think about this topic. So I had written a book uh, that was published in 2016 from the University of Michigan Press called Classics, the Culture Wars and Beyond, mm -hmm. which was an examination of the role of classical studies in American higher education in the 1980s and 1990s during the so-called academic culture wars uh, in the U.S. And as part of that book, I examined the history of classics in American higher education from the 17th century, its very origins all the way to the present. And as part of that work, I learned two really crucial things which would be important for the germination of the Battle of the Classics. One was that I learned that there was an event or a series of events called the Battle of the Classics from the late 19th into the early 20th centuries in which there were prominent disputes in American higher education about the role of the classical humanities or the classical languages in American higher education. So I first learned that that had existed, that there was such a thing called the Battle of the Classics. And second, as part of my research for that book, I also learned that there was a fellow named Irving Babbitt, who was a professor of French and comparative literature at Harvard University in the late 19th into the early 20th centuries, um, who was a prominent defender of both the classical and modern humanities. I had never heard of this guy beforehand, but as part of my research for that earlier book, I started reading Babbitt's work, and I was blown away at the fact that this guy was a first-rate thinker that I had never heard of before, and I got the sense that I wanted him to be the sort of linchpin of a, of a future book. And so those two things ended up being the kind of wellspring of the book, The Battle of the Classics. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, there's a lot to draw from there, but I think um, probably springboarding off Babbitt himself, I have to ask you the humidics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? And I'm going to assume uh, Dr. Dr. Babbitt is already in, in the room. Well, I, I didn't actually include uh, uh, Babbitt himself uh, in my answer. I mean, obviously, there's so many good answers to that question that it's so hard to sort of narrow it down to three. But surely one good conversation, which would need to be mediated through translation, uh, would include the Buddha, Confucius, and Aristotle. That might be the conversation to end all conversations. But Babbitt was of the view, and um, having done some reading myself, I incline to agree that there's a, um, an interesting correspondence in the thought of Buddha, Aristotle, and Confucius. There are obviously differences, too. They come from different cultural contexts. Their ideas are not completely the same. But there is this interesting kind of overspill between the three of them um, that to Babbitt suggested that this could be a link of the wisdom of the ages, that three seminal thinkers from three different traditions that didn't cross-pollinate very much with one another came up with similar answers to the guide to how you should live your life may give you a sense that they've hit upon something that people from various traditions have found uh, really important. So I think that conversation would be uh, fantastic. So that would be the focus if you were to, to go into that room would be how, how should we live our lives? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think already Aristotle, Confucius and the Buddha would be very interested in that particular question, would um, focus on it from slightly different angles, but might have somewhat similar responses to that um, topic. So I think that would be fascinating. Mm hmm. And do you think this is um, this is a backbone, perhaps a foundation for you in terms of how you would begin to define the humanities and where the humanities is sort of trembled at its foundations of its definition is really we need to bring in this question of if the humanities is going to be a serious thing, uh, back to this definition, which you bring in fairly quickly in your book, the original definition of the humanities as the studies of humanity, we do need, do need to draw in this notion of, well, what's all this worth if we're not teaching ourselves how we should live? I think that's right. I mean, uh, first, I would say, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree with me, that there's a distinction to, to be made between the sort of strict historical humanist movement, which, mm. um, as I talk about in the book, um, is first articulated um, as kind of theoretically by Cicero in the first century BC, and ends up having different kind of iterations to the tradition, different views of the, of the, of the tradition moving forward. But at the same time, there's a kind of broader sense of humanism. This is, again, we're channeling Babbitt, who I presume we'll talk about a bit later on in the, the podcast, um, but who talked about humanism both as a historical phenomenon, and, and here he's looking back to Cicero and the same sorts of things I'm talking about, but also what he called a kind of psychological phenomenon. That is to say, as far as Babbitt was concerned, provided you have a particular vision of human nature and a particular vision of the possibilities for education, you could be considered a humanist, even if you are not strictly part of the humanistic tradition beginning with Cicero as its first articulator and moving forward. So, but yes, I would say overall for either that historical or psychological kind of concern for the humanist movement, certainly the great questions of human existence and the sort of primary one is how you should live your life is really central or should be central to the humanities. And if it's not, I think that's a sign that the humanities are just simply not as serious um, as they've been uh, in the past. Do you think that's entirely fallen away? Do you think we really care about humanity anymore? 
It's a, it's a pretty vague well, sort of question. De- I'll, 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 right. I'll, it sort of depends on the person. I would mm. say that the way in which um, the professionalized university works, both in the United States, but in other contexts as well, minimizes the influence of humanism on the curriculum, minimizes the influence of humanism on scholarship as well. And so my impression is that humanistic scholarship, or let's just say scholarship in the humanities, I wouldn't really call it humanistic, but scholarship in the humanities is increasingly, since the 19th century in Germany, increasingly scientized Mm -hmm. so that people are interested in kind of narrow questions that have basically nothing to do with the great questions of human existence. So there's a sense in which, although many humanists or many humanities professors, I should say, are critical of the sciences um, from a variety of different angles, postmodernism, science studies, and so forth. Interestingly, much of what they produce as far as their scholarship is concerned is not humanistic, but is actually a kind of scientism or a mm-hmm. pseudoscientism in which they're looking upon their subjects in the same way that a scientist would look upon his or her subjects as well. So there is a sense in which there is an anti-humanistic core to humanities publishing by and large there's some exceptions but by and large and that does not help the flourishing of humanism in higher education or in education overall so it is it is perhaps that we are studying humans but it's almost as if we're studying humans from the position as a human but pretending we're not we're not really the same humans that we're referring to we're like we're above them you know it's this strange strange form of anthropology in a way That's a good way of putting it, an interesting way of putting it. John Agresto, who just wrote a book, um, the title is Escaping Me, uh, came up with a concept saying that we focus too much in American higher education on learning about texts rather than learning from texts. And I do think that this scientistic way of doing research minimizes the influence of learning from texts, however profound they are, and instead learning about texts. And in some senses, that makes it almost impossible for us to see these texts as conduits for a conversation with ourselves and with others that can help us answer life's great questions, because we're so interested in kind of unpacking and dethroning some of these authors that we're uninterested in really learning from the authors themselves. Mm. Do you find that in in um, in the students that you teach that perhaps there's a a reluctance, a strangeness when they finally get to the book and they think, well, this could actually help my life. This could actually uh, imbue value in the world. But then there's like a an impasse as to actually how to do that. You know, we're taught, as you said, we're taught to get in on the uh, the hermeneutic level, get in on the post structuralist level, metatextual analysis, rip this thing apart, deconstruct it, look at all the yeah. the historical context. But when it comes to the matter of this could actually imbue my life with value and meaning and help other people around we don't really have the uh foundation to 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 head into that conversation anymore do you think that's really the state of dare i say western education because your book your book does focus i wish i I should make it clear your book does have a specific focus on american american history that's right that's right so yeah i would say that that i mean it kind of it's a little bit field dependent one of the most um, enthusiastic audiences for the Battle of the Classics, my book, has been political theorists. And I think that that's not that surprising, in part because political theory oftentimes revolves around a canon, and I'm very supportive of a canon, so that's part of it. But also, I think 
political theory in the classroom is often very interested in these kind of normative questions, like how you should live your life, um, that many other disciplines in the contemporary academy, maybe all of them, aren't particularly concerned with. Mm -hmm. So I do think that some audiences are going to be more receptive than others. One thing as far as my own students are concerned, because you asked about that, one thing that immediately struck me when you asked that question was that I remember I did an independent study with a graduate student, a master's student that I had uh, on Cicero. And so she had read a fair amount of Cicero, uh, according to my syllabus, and then also had read a lot of secondary scholarship. And as she was a graduate student, this was very conventional scholarship by and large. But at the end of the semester, I offered her the opportunity to read a portion of a book by a guy named Robert Proctor, and it was called Defining the Humanities. Um, it's a wonderful book, um, originally from the 1980s and republished in the 1990s. And it used Cicero as a kind of springboard for trying to offer a curriculum for today. Mm. And one of the responses of this student to that assignment was, and this was at the very end of the semester, she wrote to me this very interesting message, I'll never forget it, in which she said, you know, I've read so much about Cicero, but until I read the Proctor reading, I felt like it was always reading about how we can know Cicero better, whereas the Proctor reading was about how we can learn from Cicero. And I'm really struck by the fact that we spent a full semester in which we weren't really focusing on how we can learn from Cicero. It was more how we can kind of debunk Cicero or how we can learn more things about Cicero. And she wasn't saying that the former perspective was uh, valueless, but she felt like there should be a kind of um, um, both, both and, not either or. And so I do think that um, with professionalized scholarship, oftentimes, again, there's a focus on learning about the author, and there's very little focus on learning from, which is seen as a kind of sub-academic question, something that might be con of concern to a kind of lay person, but an, uh, a, a serious scholar doesn't really concern uh, himself or herself with human values in any real way. Well, of course, I'm going to ask, why do you think that is? Why do you think, do you think we're, do you think as academics and, uh, Okay, let me let me throw a lot at you. Throughout the throughout the trajectory of the history within your book, there is there's of course this is within the history which I would argue is 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 moving from a uh, moving from a, a god filled pious or religious filled world through to a secular postmodern death of god world. And roughly speaking, that means you have a very clear solidification of values, which people are abiding by, mostly speaking, broadly speaking. Then you get through to the postmodern, postmodern day. Do you, do you feel that um, we perhaps feel, oh, we've done the values. We've got, we've got values. You know, even if we're not Christian or we're not whatever it might be, we are culturally that thing. It's been instilled. Even if God, even if God is dead, well, we've got the thing. And now, and now we get to play around in this post-structuralist, postmodern world. And actually, we probably need to step back and think. Mm, we need to. We need to. You know, we basically, we, do we do we feel like we know we're, we're done? We no longer actually need to learn from these, actually from these people that we can just have this deconstructionist stuff going on. Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I, I suppose there needs to be a very rather complex answer to it because it's so broad. <laughs> One thing that I would note from the book, however, is that. The movement to dethrone the classical humanities as the center of the curriculum and really 
to dethrone at least the possibility of character development playing a major role in American higher education. Whether that was really done in practice or whether this was merely an ideal is another thing, but the sort of idea that that was going to be the central part of an, the American college curriculum was going to be the classics because it was supposed to be a, a resource of humane values and therefore allow students to think for themselves how they can live up to their higher potentialities. That movement away from that vision of education towards a kind of free elective curriculum in which students get to choose whatever they want and nothing's better than anything else and so forth, that comes from the, the late 19th century in the United States. So that uh, vastly predates the postmodern movement. And so I think that a lot of this has to do, frankly, with a, a curriculum change. To me, the university is really a kind of extension of its curriculum. Mm -hmm. And in the second half of the 19th century, American higher education, this goes along with the Battle of the Classics, moved away from a focus on a prescribed curriculum that was supposedly going to lead toward the human betterment among the students, so they would at least have the possibility of living up to their higher natures, to a kind of a social Darwinian free market vision of education, uh, deliberately uh, marketed as such by the pioneers of the American research universities in the second half of the 19th century, that were, was going to dethrone a concern with character development that had previously been the central focus of American higher education, and instead move to a kind of inculcation of the scientific method as the end-all be-all of a democratic culture. And so I think that the movement away from believing that character formation was essential to education can be dated to the late 19th century in American higher education, and that this kind of lack of concern with values and these sorts of um, issues really stem from those changes. Certainly the postmodern movement, uh, depending on the degree to which someone is a card-carrying postmodernist or not, is not really going to help the search for humane values because it's obviously going to be interested in undercutting the idea of humane values or, or what have you. But at the same period of time, I don't think it's really the chief cause mm. of this movement away from character development, which really happened well before the flourishing of the postmodern movement. Mm. And so this 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 discussion that you're having this begins really with Cicero, begins with Cicero defining what the humanities is. Yeah, I'm at least in the extant literature. So one of the things that I try to focus on in the book, especially in the second chapter of the book, is that the humanities have a very complex history, actually. And a lot of people, including scholars, sort of believe they understand the humanities, but their understanding of the humanities is very presentist. It's very much focused on a kind of late 19th century and forward vision of the humanities as opposed to earlier visions. So one thing that I focus on in my book is that Cicero is the first articulator in the first century BC. He's the first articulator of uh, the, what's called the studia humanitatis, as he calls it, the studies of humanity or the studies of civilization, which, according to Cicero, are the same as the artes liberales, the liberal arts. Both terms um, appear first in Cicero in our extant literature. And to Cicero, um, the humanities and liberal arts, which were the same as far as he's were, were con uh, concerned, um, uh, is a kind of lifelong program of learning focused on all subjects appropriate for a freeborn person whose education should be focused on higher ideals than a kind of the servile arts or sort of technical or vocational skills. And so he didn't really see any differences. The sciences were included in his vision of the 
humanities, right? So then you have to fast forward to the Italian Renaissance in which um, a number of thinkers from the Italian Renaissance were deeply influenced by Cicero, but it actually made core changes to the humanities um, by narrowing the purview of the humanities. To them, um, although they were similarly focused on the idea of character development, perhaps even more so, the, the Renaissance humanists believe that one should read as part of a humanities education uh, the great works from classical antiquity in their original languages, that these were the texts that ended up being the vehicle for someone to improve themselves, to take in the wisdom of the ancients and learn how to live a good life, and that this was the focus. So, for the Renaissance humanists, the humanities was really what we would now consider a classical education. Um, it was about reading Latin and Greek masterpieces from classical antiquity that would bring on moral betterment. Well, that ended up being the dominant model in the West for centuries, but it ended up running into serious problems, especially in the 19th century um, in the United States, but also in other educational contexts. And then in the second half of the 19th century, there was a sort of switch made from the old classical classical humanities of the Renaissance humanists to what we would now consider the modern humanities. So imbuing with the power that was previously accorded by the Renaissance humanists to classical uh, literature alone to a variety of other subjects we associate with the humanities today, most of which focus around language, but not all of them. So philosophy, um, English literature, French, German, and art, art history and so forth. These were supposed to be sort of part of the what we would call the modern humanities. So there's been a number of transformations in the humanistic tradition. And one thing that I try to point out in the book that makes it really hard to defend the humanities because the humanities has meant different things at different times. And our current conception of the humanities is in some senses a kind of makeshift way of trying to save the humanities after the loss of the classical humanities during the battle of the classics. Mm -hmm. So what are you defending if you consider yourself defending something? Uh, the modern humanities, I guess. I mean, you know, it's I, I'm interested in as a classics professor. I'm also interested in defending the classics, too. So it's not as if <laughs> these things do go hand in hand. Um, I'm also interested in defending language study and why people need to have language study as well. But for me, I'm really interested in defending humanism. Mm -hmm. I feel as if higher education, certainly in the United States, but also in a number of other educational or national contexts as well, has veered away from any kind of concern with character development. And instead, we sort of naively believe that students who will receive nothing but skills-based occupational training are somehow going to go out and do good in the world. The, my university constantly talks about this, that we're going to do wonderful things uh, in the world. But why someone who's never been concerned about humane values and has never come up with an answer to life's great questions about how they ought to live their lives, what does it mean to be a good person, what is justice, why would a person who's never focused on those topics at all in his or her education naturally going to go out and do good in the world once they actually uh, graduate. That's the sort of naivete surrounding the modern university. And that's one of the things I'm really battling against. But it's a risky position today, I'd say, to, to say that you're the person who knows what good is and you're going to teach people, you know, if you said a class, right, sit down, I'm now going to teach you what it is to be good. And by, by proximity to say, I, I know what it is to be good. You have to have some pretty uh, strict values to be able to, to be able to do that. And that is a that's a risky position. Yeah. So let, let me that's a, a wonderful point. And that brings up something about pedagogy that I think is really so important about this, because obviously there's a sort of natural fear that you're going to get some 
Laosh classics professor or English professor, maybe even worse, going to sort of spout off about how you should live your life because you read a few pages of Aristotle or something like that. And this is supposed to be some great engagement. That's not what I focus on at all. And that's mm. not really what I, I want at all. Instead, what I want is um, students to be reading along with a professor some profound texts, preferably from different civilizations that different civilizations have perceived to be especially useful as examinations of some of these great questions of life. Mm -hmm. And so it should be an examination together. But that doesn't mean that someone is going to suppose uh, someone who goes through this sort of education immediately is going to become an Aristotelian and going to think Aristotle is right about everything. Uh, God forbid, given some of the things Aristotle says, that's a terrible idea or Confucius or Buddha or what have you, and just sort of take in the wisdom of the ancients. That's not mm -hmm. what I want. What I'm interested in is a much more active process, according to which students will have to read these different examinations that are not going to agree with one another in a number of respects and going to try to come up with their own answers about life's great questions. So the professor can be useful and helpful in this search for these things, but the professor isn't supposed to have all the answers either. This is going to be something that's a lifelong course of education, and one's views may change over the course of one's life. So it's n I don't want a soapbox professor who's going to be dictating to students how you ought to live your life. I want an investigation in which students are active participants. Um, in life's great questions, their answers to life's great questions through the reading of texts that generations have found to be really sound responses to a number of these questions. So if it's dubious then, and I, I've, I've sat through many um, ceremonies where people have said things along the lines of our students are now going to go out and spread good and do good, good things throughout the world. If it's dubious that that is, uh, that is the case, considering no one's really been taught what it is to do or be good or what it is to live a good life in the, in that classic sense what are we producing what are these what 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 is being carried into the world i mean you quote nussbaum who i think is great who says we're producing a generation of useful machines which i think is somewhat somewhat positive at least at least they're useful but uh, <laughs> uh, do you think that do you, would you agree with nussbaum that that's what we're producing or do you think there might be a little bit more to it than that yeah, I know. I think that's largely right. Um, I, you know, in the book, I criticize some aspects of Nussbaum's defense of the humanities, although her heart is in the right place. I think, you know, we agree entirely about what we want to do. I just mm -hmm. think it's sort of more the devils and the details as far as that's concerned. But I think that that's largely right. Um, there's other ways of putting this. Serving Babbitt put it in that we're producing efficient megalomaniacs. This is the way that he put it. Um, <laughs> so that people who are very efficient, but who have no sense that they need to be good in any particular way, and they're just sort of selfish people. And this is the result of treating students as customers so that they get to choose everything. Well, they end up having the values of customers as an adult, which means that they're always right. They have nothing to learn from the past and so forth. I mean, another way of putting this is that, especially for working class students, there's a lack of concern of cultivating the full humanity of people, that they shouldn't just be workers, they should be nothing but workers. Mm -hmm. um, because they shouldn't be concerned about humane values in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, for the most part, what we're creating in higher education today. Mm. This notion of sort of um, educational and social surrogacy as a sort of um, an artificial womb to hold people along. I mean, there's a great book by Thomas Saz, a somewhat controversial book, uh, called The Myth of Mental Illness, where he talks about this exact same phenomenon, actually, which is mirrored between what happens when you move from a communal 
how to live good towards centralized values uh, system of medicine and health towards an individualized system. So if the individual is going in as a customer, well, we have to take every single thing they say seriously because, and we can't doubt there's no possibility of anything else. Same with education. As soon as you become a customer, well, the credential is a, the credential is a, something to to get a job or something that benefits them. And we see this as well with the way that, um, you know, back in my day, I'd get told off if uh, I wasn't doing well in school and now it's completely flipped. It's the teacher's fault. Um, And so do you you think the humanities, do you think education can save itself from this? How do you think we could rebuild? If you feel it's, if you feel a lot has fallen away and there's been some sort of humanities entropy, what what steps do we need to take to begin to rebuild? And really, I'm asking you, how do we reinstill values, which is a big, big question. Right. Well, one thing I'd say is that, and this is you know key in my book, especially in the later chapters, is there needs to be a revolt from the kind of choose-your-own-adventure curriculum that dominates American higher education. Uh, a curriculum ought to be a philosophical blueprint for the sorts of adults that we're interested in creating. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the current curriculum that dominates American higher education, what are its values? Because it's not valueless. A lot of people think it's valueless because this is the kind of education that their parents received and maybe their grandparents and so forth. So they just see it as natural, but it's not natural and it's not neutral. Mm-hmm. Well, what does it say? Well, it says the kind of choose your own adventure curriculum basically says that students are customers and that they should perceive of themselves as customers and should be treated as customers, and that really nothing from the past is necessarily of value to you unless you personally believe so, so that you are completely free to be an autonomous person who doesn't learn anything from the past at all. I mean, if you think about it, you would set up an an educational institution according to which the curriculum would be determined by those who are uneducated, who haven't gone through it. That would seem obviously perverse. Mm -hmm. Why would an 18-year-old who is not educated uh, be able to determine what the curriculum is in order to be an educated person? But that's precisely what we've set up. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, Um, Education is not a product like a car. And so consumers oftentimes are not the best judges of whether they can become educated. And so you find this oftentimes in, in in a curriculum in the United States when students are given full choice to pick whatever they want. So they might have a distribution requirement. You have to take a humanities class, but you have 50 that you can choose. What do they choose? The class that doesn't meet on Friday, the one that doesn't um, have a lot of work, mm-hmm. the one in which you hear that the professor gives lots of A's and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's the one that's not at nine in the morning. You know, This is what they choose. That's not a good vision, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that if we had a curriculum of substance for the humanistic mm-hmm. portion, which minimized student choice and instead was the informed decision of the faculty, who were not interested in abdicating their curricular role, but instead interested in coming up with a kind of curriculum that might speak to the requirement in students that they ponder humane values and what it means to be a good person in a serious way, that I think that that would do a lot to fight against some of the very you know, kind of nasty tendencies in American life and elsewhere, where people think they're always right, and who are you to tell me, and so forth. There's something kind of anti-intellectual about the curriculum, and that really needs to change. An anti-intellectual curriculum, yeah. It reminds me of that Ford quote, if I asked them what they wanted, they'd have asked for faster horses. And so once you've got this scientific method instilled with this sort of, as you said, uh, around the Enlightenment, I guess, the Darwinian form of scientific 
productivity, efficiency, credentialism, all these students really are selecting for is because they're selecting from values that they've already intuited are going to get them the best result in terms of what they believe is to be the best, which really is efficiency for the sake of efficiency for the sake of more efficiency. And so their faster horses are just more and more scientific method, more and more efficiency. How can I get the, the most credentials? But then you look at the credentials and really, okay, you know about this, but you don't really understand how to you know, uh, actualize it within, within life. So what are we really doing? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and I would also point out that there's a sense in which, depending on the discipline, that what was initially set up by the uh, university reformers who set up the university movement in the late 19th century, they conceived it as openly. Charles W. Eliot, the longstanding president of Harvard, was very open about this. He thought that education should be a survival of the fittest, and those disciplines that failed to win sufficient student attention should die, and so that there should be a competition among disciplines for student interest, and those that lost should should die, so they should leave, right? Just So it's a de deliberately sort of social Darwinist uh, uh, view of, of education. The problem, or one problem with that, there are many problems with that, but one problem with that is that what ends up happening is that there's a survival of the unfittest rather than the fittest. So those disciplines that are actually least rigorous, hmm. uh, that are easiest, um, in which the, um, generally speaking, people tend to think that they do a, a less serious job of, of, of educating, those are the ones that thrive. Hmm. If you look at the giant numbers of majors in particular subjects, oftentimes those subjects are ones that most people would say are less rigorous and so forth. So students will choose oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes choose the easiest options in order to get the same piece of paper that said they went to college. So what you get is not the survival of the fittest, of the hardest disciplines, right? But instead the survival of the unfittest. Mm. So it's exactly a sort of perverse way of trying to educate people. So it's sort of a, a mutated Rousseauianism where it's not that humans are inherently good, they're inherently lazy. Right. Yes. I think Babbitt said something like, you know, the Buddhists recognize that nine out of 10 people are as lazy as they can get away with. And I think that uh, contemporary college education in the United States would suggest that there's a great truth uh, to that. And I have to say that I'm not immune to it as well. I went through college in a sort of distribution requirement system, and I was more bookish than your average undergraduate. I wouldn't be a professor if I weren't, I suppose. But I also, especially in the math and science side, uh, one of the benefits to me of the distribution requirements was that I could choose the easiest math class and the easiest science class because I had gotten it into my head. I don't know how, but I had gotten into my head that I was a humanities person. I wasn't really a science and math guy. So I wanted to take the easiest class, even though I liked chemistry in high school and even though I liked my math class and I liked my science class. You could have you could have an argument that I should have done. I should have been forced to do more of that kind of work to balance myself, to make myself more well-rounded. But instead, I kind of took advantage of the curriculum to focus on my own interests and move away from things that st struck me as less interesting. I don't think I was particularly well served by that particular model of education. I wonder, I'd ask you, do you think there's a limit to that laziness? Because I see that laziness. It's not, I don't know if it's necessarily laziness, but it's a, it's a, a, a bolstering and perhaps a, a crystallizing of those sort of invisible credentialist scientific values getting worse and worse and worse uh, and more pronounced because I would give the example of in the UK since I left what we would consider high school so at 16 the 
the what what I took were called GCSEs, they've actually changed twice since then. And usually when things change on that institutional level, it's a means to change the goalposts with respect to we need good grades. So if mm-hmm. we if we change the goalposts with regard to the needed output from students, then all of a sudden we can get 99% to highest marks again. So they've changed sort of twice in that regard. And do you think there's a limit to how lazy both institutions and students can get uh, with regards to output? Eventually we have to go, look, what what's, what's left? Right. Well, I mean, I guess it sort of depends a little bit on um, what's at stake and at what level you're talking about. So there are a number of students in America in high school who work like cats and dogs in order to try to make sure that they get into the college of their choice, um, the most prestigious college possible. And then once they show up at that prestigious college, they proceed to drink beer and fornicate for four years without doing too much work uh, with the recognition that what's important is getting a piece of paper from that fancy institution and getting in there to begin with, rather than really working hard and taking advantage of the educational opportunities those institutions offer. So certainly, I mean, as anyone who who teaches will tell you, there's going to be a a range. There's some people in my classes who are on fire to learn. Um, There's some people who probably shouldn't be going to college because they just have no interest in the life of the mind in any way, shape, or form. Um, They know that there's a kind of requirement if you want to be a white-collar worker uh, with a middle-class salary in the United States, um, you're much better served by going to college. So I think college is maybe oversold to some degree. But it's a a mixture of motivations. There are many people, you know, I hear this all the time. Every once in a while, um, you you see an article, typically in the New York Times, saying, you know, College admissions is working high school students to death. Mm -hmm. They're just killing them. So they have no childhood because they're all taking AP classes and a million different things and SAT courses and so forth. And then these same students arrive in my college classes and they're the laziest you know, you can possibly see, or some of them, right, they're just not willing to work hard. And so just wonder if there's a disconnect. Not all of them, obviously, there are many who are very different as well. So it kind of depends, and it depends on what's at stake, Mm -hmm. um, I think. But I also think that if students believed that what you can get out of education is a sense of how you ought to live your life. Mm. Some of the most profound answers to life's great questions, they may take it more seriously than if they merely think that what you get out of education is a series of job-ready skills that will allow you to get a job in in sort of the next phase in your life. Mm. So if we took education more seriously, um, as uh, educators, maybe the students or more of the students would take it more seriously as well. Well, I would say this. When I spent some time recently with a, an American institution studying there, you guys are far, far more rigorous and uh, serious about your education than the us, us Europeans. Us Europeans, you you got no clue how lazy we are. I mean, I think we make we make we take more time off than we work seriously, um, and uh-huh. e- and even then, I mean, you know, we we I think yeah, I was I was genuinely really surprised. There is a glaring difference between uh, the 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 rigorosity of American education, but there's a, there's something you mentioned there which I think is really important. So you mentioned the idea of something being at stake. So what's at stake for students now with their current understanding of what education's meant to be? What's at stake for them? But then what's really at stake if they don't have the education that you're trying to defend. 
Yeah, so I think what's at stake for students now, by and large, and again, it's institutionally dependent. There are different sorts of institutions in, in the United States, and there's some minority institutions like, say, St. John's College that has two campuses, one in Annapolis and one in Santa Fe, that's very much a great books kind of college, doesn't have majors, and is very much focused, although less omnicultural than I would like. Mm-hmm. It's very much focused on some of the issues that I'm concerned about as well. So there, you know, there's a it's a full higher education landscape in, a, in the United States, and not everything looks the same. But certainly, the dominant approach to American higher education focuses on the idea that the lone things that someone who is an educated person needs to know are a series of job ready skills. Mm-hmm. And that the chief benefit of a higher education is that will it it will enable people to gain greater power. That's one thing. Um, and second, potentially service to society. Although how they're or why they're going to naturally be turned in the direction of service is not made clear, but that seems to be one of the sort of major emphases of the original university reformers. So I think job ready skills. Uh, that were transferable from one studies to the workplace is sort of the chief benefit of uh, of higher education, strictly speaking of its curriculum. Obviously, there's social benefits to college and there's benefits to meeting people who are going to be in the work world as well of certain classes, blah, blah, blah. Um, for me, I think what I'm interested in is ensuring that higher education doesn't just focus on that. That it focuses on that, too. I understand people need jobs and people need to make a living. This is serious business. But at the same period of time, I think education should also be concerned with human values. Mm-hmm. I think it should also be concerned with some of the great questions of human existence and enable people to live sounder and happier lives. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be a revitalization of the humanities in a real sense as a conduit for students to think about these kinds of humane values and their own answers to life's great questions. To me, that's important for individual human flourishing, Mm -hmm. that people will potentially be happier and lead sounder lives if they've gone through this kind of education and they think about this during the course of their lives. But I also think that it's very useful for civilization because I think that there's something very naive about presuming, as we've talked about, that people who are educated but have not been educated with any kind of concern for values at all are naturally going to go out and do good in the world. Mm. And so there's a kind of naivete of believing that college graduates will naturally go out and serve. And one thing that I point out in the last chapter of my book is that this is what Silicon Valley tech giants suggest. If you ask them, there was a piece in The New Yorker about this very uh, question. If you ask uh, Silicon Valley tech giants who who make apps and so forth, well, why did you make this app? Their answer is always going to be this pat one, as the New Yorker said, to make the world a better place. I came up with this app because I wanted to make the world a better place. Well, if you take a look at the social science literature on these apps, most of them increase depression and anxiety and so forth. They don't make the world a better place, or at least they may partly make the world a better place, but they make the world a worse place in a number of uh, ways, too. But intriguing those people who created those apps turn out to get really, really wealthy from the creation of what they claim is going to make the world a better place. I think that's a perfect example of the the downsides of an amoral approach to education, which is not concerned with humane values. It allows people to go out in the world and fool themselves into believing that they're making the world a better place when they're actually really being selfish. That's dangerous for society. And so I think that we need to reinstill 
level, a sense of humanism, not as the only force in American higher education or in world education, but one of the dominant forces in higher education, or else it's going to lead to great amounts of human misery and also can lead to a kind of a dilapidation of society uh, as a whole. You say society is predominantly downstream from West, especially Western society is predominantly downstream from education. I think that society overall, never mind Western society overall, is downstream from culture, right? And so, you know, our vision of, and this is one of the strange things about humanities professors is that they really undercut the role of the imagination in human flourishing. One of the very strange things that you see in the American context is that in primary and secondary schools, there's all there are all kinds of fights in the United States about what students should read. And so there's a big fight about whether they should read Homer's Odyssey in ninth grade mm. or whether instead they should read contemporary young adult fiction. What, you know, which one is going to play the role and so forth. And so th- these are very unpleasant fights in some senses, but I think that they're also valuable to have because there's a recognition that what students read matters, that it shapes our views of the world in profound ways. But suddenly when Americans get to college, that question becomes uninteresting and people just ah, choose whatever you want. So you have to take a humanities class, but if it's the Analects of Confucius or it's contemporary Japanese comic books, it makes no difference. Those are just texts and you can treat them however you want, right? So suddenly the role of the imagination is completely minimal minimized in American higher education, even though there's a recognition of the role implicitly of the role of the imagination in primary and secondary schooling. Um, That's perverse, I think, and it exists in large measure because professors want to keep students away from them as much as possible so that professors can focus on what's really important in their careers, which is publishing. So they want to outsource the questions about the curriculum to the students so that the students leave them alone so that they can publish and therefore climb the totem pole of academia. But I think that that is an abdication of our role as educators to come up with a curriculum of substance that tells students this is what it means to be an educated person. Mm. I I won't comment comment on... uh... Public, academic publishing because you know Oxford University Press was kind enough to send me a free copy but right. and actually to be fair they're one of the far better academic publishers um, that I've sort of worked with throughout the podcast but your comment just just an aside it reminds me of Don DeLillo's uh, novel White Noise where you have yeah. the, prof- the Hitler studies professor talking with a professor who studies the back of cereal boxes and who can't read German too yeah. right <laughs> yeah just this just this sort of nonsensical I don't know nothingness of deconstruction um, which brings us you know i know you you have been eager to bring 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 him in it brings us to really babbitt's focus which is we need we need limitations there needs to be a limit there needs to be a canon there needs to be a curriculum but how for babbitt i guess would be a good starting place how do you begin to uh i guess paradoxically define a limit but Babbitt, I don't think Babbitt would ever want a limit, which is a comp- like an absolute limit. So how do you define a limit which allows for a some flux? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's well put, too, flux, because he's interested in that very question, actually. So first, let me say a couple of words about Irving Babbitt and who he was and so forth so you get some sense. Um, as I, I think I mentioned beforehand, he was a classically trained professor of French and comparative literature who lived from 1865 to 1933. And he was the founder and one of the kind of two leaders of uh, an intellectual or literary and social 
movement uh, called the New Humanism, sometimes called American Humanism, and sometimes called just Humanism, which is what Babbitt preferred, but typically referred to as the New Humanism, which was a major school of thought um, informally in American and to some more minor degree uh, European culture in the early 20th century. And one of Babbitt's signal achievements during the course of his life was that he was a, uh, a very powerful critic of the university movement in the United States and the movement from the old classical colleges in early America to the professionalized university that he um, lived in. He did recognize that there were downsides to the old classical colleges, too. He thought their curriculum was too narrow. There were lots of problems with the way in which uh, studies were done in the early colleges, too. So he wasn't some naive reactionary who just wanted to go back to an earlier uh, time education-wise. But he did recognize that the kind of curriculum and the sort of setup of the universities, the professionalized German-influenced universities in the United States, sidelined the humanities, um, sidelined humanism, and therefore were dangerous for individual happiness and for civilizational flourishing. And he believed that there were sort of two main um, threats to humanism that had that were dominating um, American higher education. So first, Babbitt believed that there was that all true humanists, whether they're associated with the historical humanist movement or not, all true humanists implicitly, at least, recognize that human life is dual, mm -hmm. that human beings have both higher potentialities are capable of great good, selflessness, um, mercy, clemency and so forth. But they're also they have lower possibilities or potentialities as well. They're capable of being selfish. Um, they're capable of being narcissistic. Um, having a will to power and so forth. There's all these different kinds of things. And that he believed that that kind of conception, which he sees as classical, but he also sees as Buddhist and Confucius and Christian as well, that that conception is the kind of dominant ideological um, foundation for, for earlier American higher education. And he believed that American higher education went off course with the university movement because humanism was set aside and a concern with human values was set aside for what Babbitt called sentimental naturalism and scientific naturalism. Sentimental naturalism, he associated with Rousseau as the most powerful voice of the romantic movement. Rousseau believes famously that human beings are by nature good and it's society and its institutions that has corrupted them. And therefore, at least implicitly, there's no need to be concerned with human values. You just have to focus on your own impulses um, because those impulses, as long as they're your natural impulses, are naturally good. Mm -hmm. Babbitt sees this as just wishful thinking, that human beings have good impulses, but they also have bad impulses. And what's important is this limit or this inner check. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what Babbitt called it. He also called it the higher will that would could affirm good impulses and tamp down bad impulses. So one of the threats is this idea of sentimental naturalism, that human beings are by nature good. So we don't need to work on character development. We just should improve the world. This is one thing. And then the second thing is a scientific naturalism, which Babbitt uh, focuses on Francis Bacon as the progenitor of. Mm -hmm. And that is a movement away from a concern with humane values and a focus in instead on improving the material conditions of the world through the scientific method. 
which Babbitt didn't oppose. I mean, this is obvious. It's very nice to make the world more comfortable and so forth in some respects. But he thought that this unfortunately was dominating American higher education at the expense of a concern for humanism. So that these two forces, sentimental naturalism and scientific naturalism, had sort of pushed humanism out of the picture entirely and were leading to this particular vision of an adult um, where the adult doesn't need to worry about humane values in any way, shape or form, doesn't need to worry about making oneself a better person, but instead should direct their attention entirely toward making the world a better place. According to Babbitt, that's fundamentally naive because you have to recognize that human beings have bad impulses, not just get good impulses, too. Mm. So it seems we're running primarily off our, our bad impulses. Not the worst of our impulses, but hedonism, pleasure. Could also get worse, I guess, yes. But I mean, I, I suppose but if we you wouldn't, look... But if we you... wouldn't see it. That's one of the problems, right, is that it gets worse, but within that paradigm, there isn't really such a thing as worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so one of the things that was very interesting is that I think that social media, which obviously vastly postdate Babbitt's life, has sort of reinforced some of the criticisms that Babbitt actually offered. Babbitt was a very early critic of what we would now call virtue signaling, uh, which is something that you see uh, if you have if you are unfortunate enough to have a Twitter account, you will see this constantly, um, which is the idea, I think that in order to consider yourself a moral or good person, you merely have to explain or exclaim, I guess you should say, your sympathy for the downtrodden, but that this is stripped of any concomitant concern with actually you know, doing the things yourself that might make the world better for those around you. So all you have to do is say, I am so upset about this earthquake that happened um, in Syria uh, and in Turkey, it's just so terrible, mm. uh, right? And that, if you, as long as you say that on on Twitter, that that makes you a good person, right? Mm. Without any, you know, what did you do for the people who actually live there? Did you travel there and try to help out in any mm. particular way? Did you do anything? Did you give any money to these mm. people um, that could help them and so forth? You don't. That's not required. Mm. So as far as Babu was concerned, we're, there's this kind of illusion where people just think as long as they just shout out their sympathy that that's sufficient to, de to demonstrate, you know, in the kind of that yard sign in America, I don't know if these exist elsewhere, but there's prominently these yard signs that say, in this house, we believe that science is real and love is love and this kind of stuff. Like, okay, that's fine, but what are you doing? What are you doing to make your neighbor's lives better? Mm -hmm. What are you doing that's actually possibly putting yourself out, making life more difficult for yourself in order to help other people? So Babbitt kind of recognized that there's a desire on the part of many people to make morality easy, um, in which it doesn't actually have any requirement of any virtuous acts. So virtue becomes not the expression of virtuous acts, but instead the expression of sympathy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and again, Babbitt would consider this a kind of self-delusion. People love to think their self, that themselves as good without actually doing the work necessary to be a good person. Yeah, the, uh, the desire to appear as good, but not actually be good. But mm -hmm. perhaps there's, there's some forgiveness that can happen there when you've been in, uh, completely subsumed into an education and a humanities itself, which is fairly reluctant to even touch on what, what it is to have virtue, to be virtuous. I mean, I think well, there's some, some sort of sympathies with regard, look, okay, perhaps it's not really your fault. But I am in complete agreement with you with respect to, you know, do you, if you really care about things, you, you, you'll 
you'll actually be there, you'll actually be seen, you'll be doing something. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't care. Because it's not, I, I don't think that has to come from a position of apathy or nonchalance, mm-hmm. but a position mm-hmm. of realism of my life is within a pretty much within a certain context. And I think it's a delusion to say that I care otherwise, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with the point that we ought not necessarily to blame people who've gone through an education that is not in any way concerned about character development, mm-hmm. that is not in any way concerned in a real serious way about how you ought to live your life and what it means to be a good person, to go out in the world and just to have no either interest in that question or not even really to recognize it, not to recognize that just because you mentioned that you were heartbroken by an earthquake, that that doesn't necessarily make you a good person. Well, if you've never really thought seriously about humane values, I don't think you should necessarily be blamed for that. Mm. Um, I would also point out, I think, and this is a slightly different topic, but you know, this is something that the political philosopher Klaus Rinn, who's very much a Babidian, has focused on, is that the Bible says that you should love your neighbor. It doesn't say you should love humanity. And I think the idea is that loving humanity, although it's great to I love humanity, I think it's better than than hating humanity, Mm. um, is in in some ways sort of too diffuse. It doesn't require it. Loving your neighbor requires that you might actually do things that are in the benefit of your neighbor that are not in the benefit of you in order to make the world better around you for those people around you. Whereas if just sort of saying, I'm really upset about what's going on in Israel right now, that doesn't really require anything of you. Mm -hmm. So there are so many problems in the world that it's true that we can't be deeply concerned about each and every one. But I think the world would certainly be a better place if people were more concerned about how they could help in their own uh, you know, kind of regional context to be less concerned about spouting off about how much they're concerned about issues that really have nothing to do with their own daily lives and I mean, don't require anything morally the main, from them the at all. Thing, right? It's so much more difficult to go next door and maybe have to spend a couple of hours with the lonely old woman who's a bit annoying and boring than, I don't know, this earthquake's happened for however many thousands of miles away this this whole is that 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 quote specifically from from the bible i find almost sort of laughable in its readings right the word neighbor well what do we mean by neighbor you know I, right. we, we, we mean the people right. who are literally the furthest away from us ironically it's like okay we don't right. we mean the people right. next door and it's that kind of virtue which is actually the most difficult of uh, right. she looks kind of lonely i should probably go around there but that's going to make me uncomfortable and right. i'm going to have to right. do something and yeah etc etc right. et Similarly, I would say, and I think that this is probably, you know, on all sides of the political spectrum, it's not something that you see only from one side or another, but there are a number of people on social media, especially Twitter, who spend most of their days bullying other people who Mm -hmm. disagree with them. And then at the end of the day, they sleep the rest of the angels because they've been fighting the good fight for their cause. But what are they doing during their day? They're bullying people. And yet they suddenly believe that they're just wonderful people because they're fighting for this particular cause. I mean, I think such people should be taking a look inward. You know, what does it mean to be a good person? Yes, people disagree with you on things. I'm sure people disagree with me on lots of stuff too. But shouldn't you treat other people with kindness and decency rather than, you know, hectoring them? And then why do we think that being a bully all the time, just because it's on social media or maybe in your own life, that that somehow provided you have the proper political views, that that makes you a good person. It must assuredly does not make you a good person if all you're doing around is sort of spreading misery in the world and trying to bully people. 
Mm. Social media is certainly a proof of Babbitt's criticisms of Rousseau. <laughs> certainly. I think mm. so. So what's the future? Is the fu- for, you, for you, is the future of the humanities optimistic? Is it pessimistic? Do you think, um, if, you f- if you feel there has been a serious rupture in, the, in, the, in, the, in this, uh, you know, the battle is perhaps being, being more lost than won, do you think it's savable? What's the future look like? I think the future for American institutions of higher learning, I would be um, nervous about speaking about other educational contexts because I just know much less about them. But in America, at least, I would say the future looks quite grim for American higher education in large measure because the system that was set up by the original founders of the professionalized university movement, the late 19th century, is so clever in its insidiousness that it forces certain types of um, it offers certain types of incentives to professors and administrators that ends up maximizing this problem such that, you know, obviously the job market for professors is very bad. And the way that this system works is um, what demonstrates your value as a faculty member, regardless of where you teach in American higher education, is chiefly research. So the production of kind of scientific style research is your uh, way of going about things, right? So when the job market gets even tighter, more people recognize that they have to commit themselves if they're going to try to have a chance of being a success to the creation of this kind of anti-humanistic sort of scientific naturalism research, right? And so, and that's going to be the value of the, the not only getting a job, but also getting advancement in the system, having the chance maybe to move to another institution, you know, what have you. All of that makes it really hard for there to be a genuine revolution in the curriculum so that the curriculum ends up moving more in the direction of sorts of core courses, however omnicultural, that are going to require more uh, professorial work on the part of preparing for class than the choose your own adventure curriculum is going to require. And so it's going to mandate uh, in, in a kind of very basic way that humanities professors, just like other professors, care much less about the job they're doing as educators and focus much more on their job as researchers. Mm. All of that makes it really, really difficult for there to be genuine reform. And another problem in American higher education has existed really since the start is that there's so much inherited prestige associated with a number of very wealthy and oftentimes much older institutions that, you know, say you're, you're, you have a kid and your mm. kid gets into two schools one school is has this this great college that no one's really ever heard of, but has a wonderful curriculum. And the educators are great. You think that they're going to get a great education and they're going to be a solid person when they leave. And then they also get into Harvard. <laughs> How many parents are going to send their kid to the former institution rather than to Harvard? <laughs> Almost nobody. So the kind of inherited prestige associated with some institutions of higher learning in the United States is also an impediment to kind of future reform. So for me, as far as human is, is concerned, I actually think that there's probably uh, more optimism outside of academia than there is inside of academia. There has been, for instance, this thing called the Catherine Project that Zena Hitz has set up. She's a tutor at um, St. John's College, which offers free 
great books courses in a variety of traditions in which one can go on Zoom and just read, it's sort of reading groups, if you will, focused on great texts and on a number of these kinds of questions. That's just one of a number of different things that's happened in our kind of Zoom atmosphere outside of academia that has, I think, been very valuable. Um, I would also note that Renaissance humanism as a kind of educational program first flourished outside the universities. And then when it kind of caught on outside the university context, it ended up having an influence in the universities as well. So maybe there could be something that happens outside of academia that ends up becoming popular enough that it starts to move over to universities as well. But I doubt it. I think that what's going to happen is that things are just going to get worse Mm -hmm. and that, frankly, um, as we move forward in American higher education, we're going to move back to a system perversely in which only the very wealthy and very elite are going to have the opportunity to have an education that focuses in any way, shape or form on humane values. And the rest of us, we're going to be given just job ready skills. Mm. Well, I'd, I'd throw in a little bit of optimism because I've, I've now interviewed a uh, you know, a few hundred academics from from largely from across the humanities, and and you know, surprisingly, I've yet to meet one that says, "Yeah, I like how academia is structured. It's really good." Right. <laughs> you know, so everyone is like everyone is in agreement that something needs to change, and everyone is, uh, you know, I would call it almost like academic Leninism of it selects for allegiance to this. There's no, there isn't an agenda. There's not. A, there's a, the, the horrible thing is, I wish there was a cabal of, <laughs> I don't know old academics with long beards who are like plotting to do something so you could go you know what can you go away so we can start this all again but yeah. it's almost like it's like an egregore right it's this invisible thing which we're all in agreement with it's like a mimesis and you end up it ends up just selecting for people who have allegiance to whatever this weird invisible thing regarding research and selection is and also with respect to you know i, I deal with hidden and forgotten thinkers and these are the people that that a lot of academics are practically on their knees begging for grant money to be able to write just one thing on them but of course the thing is Mm -hmm. well no one reads these thinkers so why would we give you money but it's like yeah but no one reads these thinkers because you we have you know you're stuck in a loop so oh but we'll give grant money to i don't know marx because everyone's reading marx and then the ball gets rolling and eventually you end up with these solidifications but the optimism is that I have yet to meet one academic who's sort of happy with the way things are and everyone's in agreement that there needs to be reform in the sense of what are we really, what are we really, like, you know, uh, suddenly start like an inner, a huge academic in a check and stopping and going, well, what are we actually doing? What are we teaching? Right. Um, Right. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. That's that's, that's useful <laughs> to hear. I would also say at the same time, though, there's a kind of collective action problem, right? Because, you know, first of all, I mean, professors like to complain like human beings like to complain. Mm. So I don't think you'll find too many professors who are happy about, you know, anything, you know, mm. <laughs> frankly, so, uh, myself included. Um, so there's a sense in, of that. But also there's a sense in which um, the incentive structure of American higher education, even if no individual is responsible for it or no individual sort of is the caretaker of it, Mm. ends up forcing professors, regardless of what they believe, in particular ways. So that, you know, at my university, it is very clear that the key to advancement is research. Mm-hmm. You know, successful publication of narrow research is your way. If you want to increase your salary, if you want to get tenure, if you want to become a full professor, if you want to be a distinguished professor, if you want to have the opportunity to get outside offers offers for employment all and therefore raise your salary or go elsewhere. All of this is based on research. So you might say, gosh, it's terrible. As I say, they focus so much on research and rather than curriculum design or teaching or service and so forth. 
But that's the way the system works. So one might say, oh, I'm, I'm very upset with the system as I am. But then someone might say, well, OK, why don't you sacrifice your career? And instead of doing research, yeah. you're going to focus on curriculum design. And let's see how that works out. Right? I won't do that because I'm too worried about my job. But you do that. Right. Yeah. So in general, if there isn't some sort of organic, large movement that allows people in a group to make changes, the system's going to stay the same way. And another thing that I would point out about this is that those professors who have been outsized influence on the future of their field are typically the fanciest researchers at the fanciest institutions of higher learning in the states or elsewhere. They are the most invested in keeping the system the way it is because they receive the most perquisites from the system as it exists. Yeah. So it becomes even harder to make meaningful change if those people are dominant in their disciplines are actually those who are happiest with the state of affairs as it exists. And they should be because they get the highest salaries, the most prestige and so forth from the system as it exists why would they want to make a change yeah i was talking to one of the other guests called john michael greer about an author called theodore uh, theodore rozak who wrote some criticisms of uh, education in his day and he said yeah rozak's good but it's the the kind of critique that goes no further than the faculty lounge right we need someone who mm -hmm. uh, we need someone who who's gonna going to have the courage to sort of say you know what uh, we need to go a bit further than this because I've always point, pointed out one of the ironies, even of the most postmodern of postmodernists, such as Foucault, Derrida. Well, where where did they not exactly want to go too too become too critical of the university system? Because you know, got to got to put food on the table, got to eat. We got to we got to when you when you you know, I I don't I don't think it's a it's a damnable offense to say that when your wage is tied to something that you are reluctant to. Right. Put a foot wrong, right? <laughs> um, yeah. But as you say, there needs to be uh, an almost like a Ned Ludd collective smashing of the uh, smashing of the looms. I agree. I agree, and I think that for pragmatic reasons that I've articulated and you articulated, it's less likely to happen, but it's more necessary than ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything you'd like to add about the Battle of the Classics, which we uh, haven't touched upon? Uh, no, I, I think we've done a, a pretty good job. I mean, I think one of the things that I should say about the book overall is that the conceit of the book is that there were debates in the late 19th and early 20th century about whether the classical humanities, that is to say the study of the Latin and Greek language and Latin and Greek literature, should remain the central element of the American college curriculum as it had been since the colonial period, or whether there should be this kind of elective system instead in which uh, the humanities or the classical humanities would leave as the central part of the uh, American college curriculum. And that the idea behind the book is that we can learn a great deal about those debates about the um, role of the classical humanities in American higher education in the 19th and into the 20th centuries that will be directly applicable to our defenses of the modern humanities in the 21st century. And I try to argue in the book that the traditionalists in the, deba the debates of the Battle of the Classics in the late 19th and early 20th centuries made the same mistake that we're making today by focusing only on the skills that a humanistic education offers. In the late 19th century, this meant focusing on mental discipline and the idea that Latin and Greek offered more mental discipline than, than other subjects. And now this means something like the idea that the humanities teach you critical thinking skills, um, and therefore they need to be retained. I try to demonstrate 
the downsides to both of those arguments and suggest that in the same way that the mental discipline skills-based defense of the classical humanities didn't work in the course of the Battle of the Classics, the critical thinking kinds of defenses of the humanities that you see now aren't going to work either. And so we need to have a greater connection with humanism. And so uh, those who agree with me or even those who disagree with me or are on the fence might be interested in in picking up the book and seeing what they think. Mm -hmm. And the book can be found via the Oxford University Press website and also, I imagine, via most good booksellers. So I'll be sure to put the links in the description below. I believe you're working on a book on Babbitt's letters now, editing a book? Yes. So, uh, in fact, right now I'm working on the index and the proofreading and so forth. So uh, my next project, and this I think had a lot to do with the fact that I've become chair and so I have much less time for research. So I'd like to write a monograph, but I just had the feeling that I just am not going to have the kind of sustained time to do it, um, was uh, a collection of letters between the two principal agents of the new humanist movement, Irving Babbitt and his best friend, a guy named Paul Elmer Moore, Mm -hmm. um, who was uh, for a time the editor of The Nation, the magazine in the United States, but also was a classically trained um, professor as well. He taught for a while at Princeton University, first in the philosophy department, but ultimately in the classics department too. And the two of them were the progenitors of this new humanism mm-hmm. and the uh, correspondence between the two of them, letters going back from the 1890s all the way to 1933, um, have been locked away in archives, one at Harvard and one at Princeton. And so uh, I'm publishing for the first time these letters uh, between the two, so you get a real sense of how this movement was cobbled together and what its ideas were and so forth, along with a full-scale introduction to Babbitt more and the new humanism more generally. That should be coming out, uh, depending on how quickly I do my work, that should be coming out by the end of 2023. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what I'm going to ask. Would you like to do? Would you like to have a discussion about uh, new? Oh, humanism? absolutely! You know what I'm going to answer, which is yes, <laughs> as the answer to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I look, yeah, I look forward to it. It was a uh, uh, reading Babbitt, but it was one of the most original thinkers I'd read in a in quite a while. You know, he's he's, he's so tucked away. It's sort of uh, it's disappointing, but there you go. Um, but yeah, I'll be sure to put the links for the Battle of the Classics in the description below, and I look forward to hopefully reading the the book of letters on uh, with Babbitt and on new humanism. But um, yeah. Eric Adler, it's been a great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, James. I've enjoyed it immensely.